Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here is your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Welcome to another episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. It is me, your host, John Cutton. Hope everybody's doing great today. Uh, so today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, this is part one of a two-part series where we're going to look back at some of our uh, latest guests over the last year or so uh, who've been kind enough to share some amazing nuggets of information for all of our listeners and we're going to take some snippets of some of the best moments in quantum growth history. Uh, so with that, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, please stay tuned for part one of some of the great nuggets that we've all learned. So it really starts with, with the mindset. You know, this is such a self-limiting belief that my clients won't pay for this. You know, they already pay a lot for their asset management. I've got tough clients. They challenge me on their asset management fees. There's no way on earth I could add this on. Uh, you're, you're right. Tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, barrier into getting into this. So I, I really, you know, challenge, let's think about the opposite of this, that you'll probably lose your clients if you do not do this. Because there are others out there who might make this available to people and they'll probably jump to them. Because we know the root of all this is people want advice. And if you have a professional offering that's very clear and engaged in advice, those clients are sticking, they are staying around. So if you shift to thinking from, I'm not sure if I'm gonna add this on or if I can charge to, if I don't, I will probably lose them. It helps advisors shift. And if we get caught up with asset management fees, look, there's somebody out there that will manage your client's assets for cheaper and they'll do a darn good job at it. So you've got to be good at value interpretation. It's not about price. You'll, you'll go out of business if you try and undercut people and uh, try and compete on price. You just, you can't do that. You've got to be more valuable than others. And this is really the silver bullet. This is the way to be valuable. This is the way to keep clients. So, so once you have a little bit different thinking that, okay, this is what people want. And if I don't do it, they're probably going to leave. Then it opens the door to, well, let's just make it an option if they wanted to do it and, and see what happens. And usually uh, we have some questions we help advisors go through just asking, hey, what are you worried about? What do you really want help with? What's the best advice I can give you? And you ask those questions a few times, you really get down to the stuff that they want. Sure, retirement's a big concern. People might want that. But there might be some other things like, we want to do something for our grandkids and we don't know what to do. We want to, you know, do this special thing and we're not sure if we can do it. You know, can you help me with that? Sometimes these are the best reasons to do planning. So if you just ask questions about what they really want help with, they're going to open the door to the reasons to do some kind of full financial planning. And yeah. then you can, you know, position the value that, gosh, if you got help with this, you know, what would that be like? I have a service available that I could help you with that. Here's what it looks like. And, 
you know, some advisors have the challenge of, of spitting out the 2,500 or 5,000 uh, uh, all at once. You could position those as a, a monthly rate. You could say, hey, it's a couple hundred bucks a month. Uh, if you compare that to their entertainment of cable TV or satellite TV, it's uh, pretty cheap to get help with these really, yeah. really important things when you compare that. But also, I, I think having a tool like a menu to show them this, it really helps. And if anyone wants examples of menus, I, I've got some great ones that I'm, I'm, I, I'd be happy to share with you. Just shoot me an email. But uh, menus that show that, hey, when you only do investments, here's what you get. And I might have two or three levels of planning available so that, you know, I could help, you know, your kid that's kind of getting started out. I've got my standard level of, you know, 2,500, the, the average offering, but I also have a level that I can help more complex clients, clients with a lot of needs, some tax uniqueness, maybe some estate planning issues, maybe a business owner that's got a lot of complexity, you know, a levels that you could help them there. And some of the advisors that I've seen use a menu when they let the clients choose that, hey, how much engagement do you want? How much help do you do you really want here? Uh, I, I remember one of the advisors I coached to try this. He had a lot of his top clients. Say, you know, I want this high level. And he said, you know, you probably don't want that. That's it's 10,000 a year. You know, are you sure you want that? Say, yeah, that's no big deal. It, it's, it's amazing when you just you think differently you ask questions about what they want. You have something like a visual menu to let them choose. Man, it, it's it's incredible what happens. And it it then it reinforces the okay, I need to do this. And clients want this and they're willing to pay for it. Then advisors take off. Then they have this reinforcement of uh, this is the right thing to do, this is the right path, which so many advisors in the industry do. Some of the highest uh, client satisfaction advisors that keep clients for long times and get more referrals that they can handle. Financial planning is the center point of, of what they do, but we've all got to get out of our own way and, and make this leap to that point. And it starts with you know overcoming some of these self-limited beliefs, getting through it, having some questions in your back pocket to ask and leveraging some kind of menu to let people choose what level they want and opening the door and getting them into this is great. And hey, you can move them up and you can move prices up in the future, but it's taking that first one, two, five clients, as you said, John, and, and getting them started with it. Yeah, so all of our events are at a pre-scheduled time. So it's come Tuesday at 6.30 to listen to this you know, whether that's in person or recorded, you know, we don't see, you know, we, we did a lot of testing on the on-demand stuff. Um, the feedback we got from most advisors was when they did something on demand, they were getting more do-it-yourselfers. You know, the, the, the guy that goes to YouTube to figure out how to change the calipers in his car, right? Mm -hmm. That's the guy that's going to sign up for a on-demand webinar and learn. He's going to figure out what he needs, and then he's going to go do it himself. Um, so we haven't really put a lot of effort into the on-demand stuff. Everything that we do is at a specific time and date. They sign up, shows that they're engaged. Um, and it's interesting. You said, you know, we've, we've kind of figured out the, the algorithm or the secret sauce. And, you know, I'll tell you, digital marketing is an ongoing, you know, moving target. You have to, you have to pay attention to every single data point. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of advisors said, ah, I could do this on my own. I ran a Facebook ad, it worked great. And they did it once and they came back and they tried it again and it failed and they tried it again and it was mediocre. So it's, it's a moving target that you have to 
pay attention to. And the only way you can really adapt is through massive amounts of data. That's it. Um, and interestingly enough, whether it's a seminar or a webinar, there's things that go into it that many advisors wouldn't necessarily consider. You know, there's the standard stuff, the day and the time, that absolutely matters. Um, but in-person events, one thing that we see is um, the venue plays a huge role in how successful the event is. And it's almost the opposite what a, an advisor would naturally do, right? And an advisor, what they're going to do is they're going to look for the nicest venue in town, and they're going to keep going there over and over and over again, right? And that's almost the worst thing you can do for, <laughs> for us to have good results at a seminar, especially an educational event. You know, with anything marketing, the more rotation you can put in, switching up the topic, switching up the venue, even if it's two minutes down the road, you know, adds a freshness to that marketing message that will drive new attendees. And that the thought process behind a venue, and I'll just put this out there for advisors to think about whether they use white glove or not. Don't go for the, the nicest place in town with the best water feature and the beautiful hedges out front that only serves Fiji water. If you're looking for education, if you're going to give them food, yeah, that's the way to go, right? But if you're looking for an educational event where that's the only thing they're coming to, you know, look into that dingy community center, right? That, that library, that local college. You want your attendees to have that feeling of, I have never been sold anything here. That's what you want. You want the venue to not speak to your credibility as an advisor, how great you are. You want it to speak to the event's credibility and how it's going to be strictly educational. And that's what's going to increase your attendance. We see all the time that advisors host, you know, in, the, in a conference room near their their office or a business center that's across the street from their office. And they consistently perform awful compared to the library that's a block away. And mm -hmm. it's, and it's all about the events credibility, not the advisors credibility. If you're inviting them to come learn, put it in a, put it in a setting that is conducive to learning, not conducive to sales. A couple of things come to mind. One is that as, um, leaders as we look at a leader of the entrepreneur in a company is typically what we call we're more interested in functions and titles so you know not ceo we say that often that leader is a visionary type of leader you know it was their idea their energy they drive the culture and so they have a certain role to play and then we have this concept of an accountability chart, which is very different from an org chart. And the reason people didn't, the reason you were banging your, your hand or your head on the table for so many years is people may not have understood that there is, that a company has critical functions, usually somewhere between three and eight critical functions, and then a number of major roles under these functions, and then we put people in the seats and oftentimes people in an organization don't know, they don't understand their seat. They have a title, but they don't understand the critical roles of their seat and what it means to own a seat. And what it means, what it means when you own a seat and it's written on the accountability chart is that you're accountable for everything that goes on in that seat. So when you start to feel that accountability and it's measured in a scorecard, it's driven into numbers in a scorecard and it's monitored in a weekly level 10 meeting 
where you're looking at whether your rocks are on track or off track, whether your scorecard measurables weekly are on track or off track, people start to take ownership. And from a visionary standpoint, what you really want is everybody to own their stuff. It's a family show, so I won't say what I was gonna say. <laughs> we want them to own their stuff. And that gives the visionary and everybody much more freedom. And, and one other thing I'll say, because I'm, I'm, I love our tool set, is we have a wonderful tool that anybody can use called the VTO, Vision Traction Organizer. Amazing. Eight questions that are the critical questions. It's two pages. And if you thoughtfully answer these questions, what are your core values? What's your core focus? What's your 10-year target? What's your marketing strategy? What's your three-year picture? What's your one-year plan? What are your quarterly rocks? And what are your issues? If the visionary of the firm and the leadership of the firm every 90 days gets in front of everybody, whether it's 10 people or 100 people or 300 people, and says, folks, these are our core values. Here is our purpose, cause, or passion. This is where we're going to be in 10 years. This is where we're going to be in three years. Here's the picture. Our one-year goals look like this. And you repeat yourself often. That's a big thing in EOS. You have to tell people something seven times before they hear it for the first time. So you repeat, repeat, repeat until they know it backwards and forwards. And all of a sudden, Everybody gets it. And the people who don't get it, because everybody doesn't get it, the people who don't get it, leave. And that solves a lot of problems. It's much better when someone says, ah, I, don't, I don't buy into this. These are not my values, or I'm just never going to live up to their expectation. Then they take themselves out of the picture. And that makes it much easier for all the other folks who are bought in. So it's this idea of tool set. And, and what I do as an implementer is you know many companies self-implement EOS and which is great and some companies want the help of doing it in a structured way with somebody who does this for a living and that's what I do so when we implement we do it through a series of full day sessions with the leadership team I work strictly with leadership teams so we'll have a full day session what we call focus day and then a month later, the first of two vision building days, and a month later, the second the second vision building day. And then we meet every quarter, living in a 90-day world. We do quarterly planning, full-day sessions with the leadership team outside the office. And this keeps everybody's circles connected, keeps everybody focused on the vision and on executing. So many companies can self-implement, and some companies like the idea of accelerating their growth by working with someone who's certified to teach and facilitate it. That's what I do. For a seller, so put your seller's hat on for a second. The buyer has to look at your future business and the carrying cost to buy your business and what's going to happen with, and which way is your business trending and then determine whether or not there's a good return on that investment. And if we're heading into, depending on what your opinion is, I think more people think that we're sort of at the beginning of a, of a, of a bear market uh, they have to make an assumption that your business is going to be maybe lower next year or the year after than it is this year. So why should I pay as high a multiple? Um, I want to lower the multiple. Um, I, I, that, I think that's going to be a trend. The sticker shock is going to be 
if you're listening to this right now and you were thinking about selling your practice a year ago and you're waiting for it to top tick, uh, you're going to get, you're going to be a little bit upset. You know, all of a sudden they're going to, that offer is going to come back. It's going to be lower than you thought it was going to be. So you may put the brakes on a little bit, but then you're going to come back six months from now. And I think you're going to get upset again. Um, you know, and the reality is if you want to get out of the business, whatever the reasons why you want to get out of the business, whatever reason is you're selling, you're thinking about selling, my advice is don't wait. Um, you know, that's that expression, bulls and bears make money and pigs get slaughtered, right? Yep. Right? And if you don't be a pig about the deal, make sure it's the right firm for your clients. Make sure... You know, there are going to be some triggers on the back end, so make sure that you can hit those triggers. And you know, we talk about advisors ask me about wirehouse deals all the time, and well, this firm's paying this huge number, it's like 350%. I'm like, yeah, but if you look at the back end of that deal, and that's not unlike a transition deal or an MA deal, right? If you look at the back end of those deals, if you can't hit the number in year four and five, you shouldn't even count it, right? Like it should, doesn't exist. And so take those two years off and then that's whatever, whatever's left, that's the real number of your deal. And so if you're an advisor thinking about, thinking about retiring or whatever transitioning, there are plenty of ways to skin the cat that maybe you don't have to, you know, exit stage left right away, but transition. Very high level, we would boil it down to three things. Increase client value, increase profit, improve work-life balance. Those are the three things that we touch on essentially right out the gate. And then all of the language, the tools, the presentations is all geared around helping them do that. So do you want to escape the traditional grind, bring more value to clients and actually make a better living doing it? And I'd say typically in the second meeting, we take them through an exercise where we look at the number of clients they have. And I'll just for role play sake, say it's 500 clients, right? They have 500 clients. Okay. What's your average client fee? Let's say it's $800. You know, they do some personal returns, which maybe they're four or $500. Maybe they do some corporate returns, which are thousand, 2000. You average out, let's say it's $800 for your 500 clients. Okay. So, you know, roughly you can say that's less than a million bucks. And what if instead of having 500 clients, you actually reduce that down to a hundred clients, but rather than making $800 a year, per client, you were making 5,000 a year per client. Well, all of a sudden you have one fifth as many clients and you have significantly more revenue and not only top line revenue, but you just cut your clients from 500 to 100. You actually can reduce your overhead as well. So your profits increasing both, you know, so your gross and your net profit is going up and you get to do things you enjoy more, like bringing more value to clients, solving problems, not just doing tax returns and the grind of the traditional tax season. So that message is not one that we are like, we didn't come up with that. I mean, many years ago, we used to preach that, but in the last few years, it's been a message that's just been adopted by the thought leaders in the accounting space. And so we're kind of like, great. We're, we're, we're glad that you're starting to share the same message. We can show you how to actually do it. And I think, that's, that's the exciting thing, John, is when you can show 
an accountant and if any uh, listeners right now haven't worked with accountants, just think of like a, an engineer, a leveraged engineer. They like process. So if you can bring them a clear step-by-step process and you can show them how to do something and that you're the catalyst, no pun intended, but you're the catalyst to make that happen for them, all of a sudden you make yourself very attractive. So a couple of things. I mean, uh, as far as inflation and, and everything that's going on with the markets, I'm just seeing a lot of, you know, real professionals that have been there before and, you know, hey, we've been to this dance, right? So it's going to work out okay as long as you stick stick with it. And I think, you know, we did our work for this, you know, we're earning our pay now, but we did our work, you know, two years ago, three years ago. I mean, as you sat down with clients and did planning, you know, you told them this could happen. So here we are. So I'm not seeing a lot of panic at all. And, I'm, you know, I talk to folks at a high level and, and uh, you know, so it's, and I'm not seeing them panic at all. You know, everyone's sort of, you know, feeling this is, you know, we're going to get through this one way or the other. And I think we will. Um, what, what I am seeing in the industry as a whole, which is interesting, is through all this, through the pandemic, uh, our industry has continued its sort of seismic shifts that had started about 10 years ago, the sort of move to independence and, the, and, and advisors sort of voting with their feet, so much movement around, a lot of M&A. Uh, that got about two months of a break during the start of the pandemic and then continued as if nothing was happening. And it's, you know, the beginning of this year was a little slow. So I was wondering, you know, is it a market related thing, but it's still going really fast. And, you know, people I speak to again at the highest levels are telling me, no, it's, we're having our best year recruiting. So um, it's interesting. I, I think the, the whys haven't changed, but they've been sort of codified. You have, if you look at, uh, I, I think people are sort of moving to the middle, right? If you look at the middle, like rather than a circle, like an oval, say on one side, you'd have, you know, wire bank wirehouses. On the other side, you'd have sort of, you know, independent quirky firms. And in the middle is kind of everybody else. And they're, they're progressing towards that, right? There, there's a, this ethos that drove the independent movement is driving this move to the middle. And I think if you're a regional firm or, you know, a large, you know, national sort of regional firm, uh, you could say, hey, we were here already. We had the culture. We had all, we had the client centric. And I, I think there's a lot of, you know, validity to that. That being said, the people that are making the jump are a lot of these independent firms. They have the, the, the culture of client first and, and, and you know, product choice. And now they're just, everyone's just as sophisticated as everybody else. I don't think you can make an argument that I'm at a wirehouse and I have more sophisticated products versus an Ameriprise or a JNE or an independent. You know, we're, we're all swimming in the same ocean now. So because we're in that middle piece and there's so many firms that have gravitated there and they've gone there because advisors have voted with their feet, this is what I want, right? So people are there. Now there's every flavor of being in the middle, every slice. So your delivery system could be anything you want, independent, independent with, you know, uh, hybrid, independent with help, regional, uh, you know, major regional, you know, OSJ. I mean, everything is in that slice, but people have sort of agreed upon, uh, I think in general, a cultural ethos that this is this is this is how things should go. So that wasn't the case ten years ago. You know, the, it was you know you want a friend get a dog. That's our culture, right? And now it's a little bit different. So I find that very interesting, and uh, you know, uh, I'm happy about that. So here's the problem with with the independent diaspora. the 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 big wirehouses had the money to do real training and train people. Now they didn't, they didn't, I don't think they did it right. You'd have to ask yourself, you go to any other industry and say, oh, we have a great training program. You know, 80% of the people drop out of it. Right, 80% it, right? Earlier, right. I mean, you know, okay. 
that people normally wouldn't in our business, we think that's successful, but everywhere else we think that doesn't make it, it would say this is freaking stupid, but that's the way we've done it. And then we took away the ability to cold call, right? So then how do you build? So if your dad's not a doctor or a lawyer or somebody you know, who's richer, how are you going to find the network to, to, to build out of? And then that brings us to the question of diversity. You know, why don't you see more people of color? Well, if you're the first generation college student, who are you going to call? You know, right. And now the, the, the bank goes, well, we're going to give you the accounts. And, and that's where I think this whole thing with diversity is a problem. We're not giving those people, first generation people, the same chance that you and I had to build a real business because they're being given a salary and whatever the bank gives them. They're not entrepreneurs building their own thing. We're not supporting them. And I think you have to stretch your mind about supporting and what training means Um Give people, you know, country club memberships, give them, you know, let, let the, give them things they don't have so they can go out there and, and produce and, and find ways to, I just think you have to be creative because you can't just snap your fingers and get uh, leads. So here's something where the smart firms that will help figure this out. The pandemic has has accelerated some of the stuff where there are, you can meet somebody by Zoom now. And the fact that you can, you know, the internet sort of creates a level playing field in a lot of ways that you can do. But but I've not seen the firm that's come around to exploit that in exactly the right way. And advisors are doing it on their own. Um, and you know, the easiest thing to do is to shove them into a team. And then they're not entrepreneurs; they're order takers, and they're not—they're not building something new, and they're not really serving the team. I don't know about you; I want a teammate who's going to come in and you know sh show me something I haven't seen, right? <laughs> give, give me something right. new, not just you know I need you to do this, but bring in something new. So I, I'm very concerned about you know where it goes, and at some point, all you're going to have is order takers, and people will be maybe afraid or not want to work with you know the entrepreneurial uh, you know set. So. Um, our generation has got to try to figure that out for the next generation. It's going to be very difficult to do in the independent world to create entrepreneurs. I think in your position where you guys are, you know, huge teams and all that, you can always bring in young people to work for you and keep, try to keep the spirit alive, but it's just a, you know, it's a different thing if you're not out there on your own. Too many of us unintentionally get out of alignment. Okay. I, I described the, the study that was done many, many moons ago that actually said in terms of long-term success, on average, only 5% of it is attributable to self-discipline and motivation. That surprised me when I heard it. I thought the people that were most successful in any field were really self-disciplined and motivated. They actually are, but the majority of that is, is systems. They use their self-discipline and motivation to stick to their systems. My whole thing is do it intentionally. Do it intentionally to create time for yourself, work with the people you want to work with, do what you love, do it intentionally. If people all of a sudden they accident in 30, 40 years have gone by and they hate what they do and just like my life's blown by, you owe your, to yourself to take care of yourself. You only get one of these lives. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it, and um, I hope you'll agree, and I'm sure you do, that those were some amazing nuggets. Uh, thanks to Mr. Joe Greco, again, for uh, a little uh, splicing and dicing of some of our last podcasts. I know that was a lot of work. Uh, and stay tuned. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be coming back with part two, uh, where we'll continue to share some of the greatest nuggets uh, in quantum growth history. So make it a great day, and we'll see you soon. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.